Thank you uh, very much, Pastor Mark. Well, today is a special day in the life of, of our church. We, along with about 50,000 other uh, Southern Baptist churches across the country, are um, uh, separ se separ celebrating the cooperative program because when this uh, COVID-19 crisis began to spread across the globe, as I I've uh, noted earlier uh, our work as churches, our work as, as believers did not stop. And uh, things have certainly changed around uh, our world in the last few weeks. Amidst all this uncertainty, uh, our churches, our associations, our conventions have not stopped working. And uh, we've got overseas missions programs, we've got North American missions programs, we have seminaries, uh, colleges that still meet virtually, and this is a video that will give you a good overview of all of our activities um, that is going on around this country for such a time as this. This is our cooperative program. The word together means more today. In these moments of isolation and fear and turmoil, together means more. As Southern Baptists, we are churches dispersed across the country, varying sizes and locations and cultures, and we share our generosity. In good times and bad, through wars and depressions, through terrorism and disasters, we serve side by side. We give for a common goal. We sacrifice together for the only mission that truly matters, the Great Commission. We are drawn not by the events of the day, but by the events of our shared King. His gospel story changed our own story and promises to change the story of the world. And so we pray, we give, we go. And although today we are physically together we stand. We didn't ask for this moment. We didn't seek it. But in this moment, we choose to come together because the Great Commission cannot be thwarted. Disease and pestilence will not stop him. Economics and markets have no control over him. Fear and anxiety doesn't affect him. Distance cannot hold him. Death did not defeat him. God's plan cannot be stopped. It will not. And his plan is for us to join him. These times are challenging. They feel isolated. They put the true value of the cooperative program on full display. We are better together. And together we bring the good news for the whole world. So as you can see there uh, in that video uh, that spotlights the uh, roughly 4,000 international missionaries um, We've got more than 47,000 local churches, uh, 1,100 local associations of churches, 41 conventions, and 12 national entities 
and they're all points of lights uh, across the country and across our entire world. Uh, we're also blessed with 5,000 missionaries in North America, uh, as well as chaplains who are just working day and night right now, ministering to uh, the most vulnerable uh, in our population. So um, it's an honor for me to be uh, delivering to you God's word this morning. Uh, so let me just start us out with prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now that uh, you would open your word to your people, that you would speak through me only the words that you would have to communicate for such a time as this. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us with wisdom, with discernment, and with courage as we continue to go forward, as we continue to go into all the world with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that I pray. Amen. So, if the Lord Jesus Christ were standing right here, and he is standing here, may not, may not be physically, but he's standing here this morning, and if he was here, uh, and if he, if he was in your room, wherever you're watching this, and if you can ask him any question, any question, what might it be? Well, I, I can imagine that most of us are really wanting to know um, why there is still so much suffering in the world. Uh, as we, we saw in the news here in Chicago uh, on Friday, uh, we've got more than 10,000 tests that, that were done, uh, which is sort of a, a barometer of, of where we're at in terms of preparedness. But we also hit, hit a, a new high, you know, more than 16,000 uh, cases uh, confirmed uh, of COVID-19, which again is a high. And many of us would want to know, uh, you know, why is there so much suffering, you know? And, and, and there, I don't think there's a church in America right now where members, uh, if they're not directly hit with, they're indirectly hit with two to three degrees of separation from someone that they know who has COVID-19. And, and the questions are, well, why did COVID hit my family, you know? Um, when, we're, when are we going to get back to normal? And what is this new normal even going to look like, okay? So uh, I, I, I would gather to guess that your questions are more immediate uh, for Jesus. Uh, certainly the great C.S. Lewis, he struggled profoundly with despair after... Uh, the death of his wife, Helen Joy, in 1960, after only three years of marriage. And he asked this profound question. Where is God? Question mark. This is one of the most disquieting symptoms he writes in, uh, uh, in his book on grief. He said, go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Has anyone lived in that house? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. 
What can this mean? Lewis asked. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in our time of trouble? Question mark. Well, this morning, I'm, I'm not going to answer those profound questions. I'm, I'm going to ask a much less profound question than the ones that Lewis asked about his moment of grief. And my question is simply this. How, how does my faith, how does your faith show up for such a time as this? And this is about our sixth or seventh message in this COVID series of messages. And our reading today is in Luke 10, verses 25 to 29. The scriptures say, One day this expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? The attorney said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And... Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied to him. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You know, in this story, uh, this story, Jesus talks about, he's going to talk about violence, He's going to talk about crime. He's going to talk, talk about racial discrimination. He's going to talk about hatred. But at the same time, you're also going to see neglect. You're going to see con concern. And you're going to see compassion. Aren't those the stories? Those are the same stories we're reading right now uh, in the news stories on COVID-19 and the situations. We see the same thing. We see racial discrimination, we see neglect, we see concern, we see compassion played across these pages. If you don't believe that the Bible is relevant for today, uh, I would challenge you to go back and read Luke 10, verses uh, the 25 to, to the, through the rest of the chapter. It is extremely relevant for us today because this is the prelude to what is commonly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay, which is actually a story within a story, like those Christmas gift boxes that you get. You know, you open one box and you get another box and then you get another box. This is like that. The first story is about salvation, and the second story answers the question that is the title of this message. How does your faith show up for such a moment as this? The crisis that we're going through. First, the questioner or the inquirer in this case is an expert in the law. Jewish religious law. He's more of a theologian, really, than an attorney. And we see verse 25, we see in verse 25, his real motive was not to seek a truthful answer, but to rather to test Jesus. He wanted to test Jesus by asking him this question. 
Like many in the religious establishment of his day, uh, this expert in the law was trying to trip up Jesus and his answers, right? You see, they were threatened. Uh, I'm talking about the Pharisees specifically. They were threatened by his growing popularity. So he was going around, he was healing people with leprosy, skin diseases, he was, you know, healing the sick. He was teaching, preaching the good news of deliverance from sins. And the people were amazed at his teachings because he taught with great authority. And that attracted the multitudes away from the religious establishment at that time. So they, they tried to discredit and eliminate Ammon uh, early on. So the original question this religious expert asked Jesus was, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to be frank, that's a pretty, that's a dime a dozen. They asked that question all the time back then, okay? Uh, that's a pretty standard routine question. So it's nothing unusual about asking, what should I do to, to inherit eternal life? But there's not a more significant question to ask than that one. Built into that question, inherent in that question, is an assumption that this religious expert shares with most people. Not only back then, but most people hold now. Eternal life, this expert in the law thought, eternal life can only be gained when the good stuff that we do, right? When the good stuff that we do outweighs the bad stuff, all right? Here's the problem with that worldview, folks. That prevalent worldview, which is inherent even today, is that even if our good stuff, the good stuff that we do, outweighs our bad stuff, we still fall short, right? James says, if you fail in one point of the law, you failed them all. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, but you are to be perfect, perfect, even as your heavenly Father is, per is perfect. That is the standard. Back then, and it is still today. Now, in our natural state, in our natural state as human beings, that is a human impossibility. Nevertheless, this lawyer's assumption is that salvation, to inherit eternal life, only comes by human works. Well, this lawyer's question really is an oxymoron. It is contradictory in nature. You cannot do something as a gift, to inherit a gift, okay? You cannot do something to receive a gift. In this case, the gift of eternal life, okay? My birthday is coming up in a couple of months, by the way. I just throw that out. And let's just say if, if Pastor Mark comes to me, uh, you know, Pastor Mark, you know, I, lo I love the Cubs, and he loves the Cubs, and let's just say he comes to me, and, and by that time, you know, Lord willing, uh, all the parks are open, the ballparks are open, they're filling up, and Pastor Mark somehow runs into these two rare uh, Cubs tickets uh, in, because somebody gave it to him and he received it, okay? He received it at no cost. And he comes to me and says, hey, Doug, I got seats right behind the, uh, the catcher, okay, to the Cubs game. 
I, you know, I, I want to treat you to them uh, as, a, as a birthday gift. But you know what? Can't do that. I'm going to make you work for them. Okay? Look, that is not a gift. All right? Uh, inheritance. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Inheritance is based on relationship. All right? It is not based on achievement. It is not based on you and me achieving something. This is what differentiates Christianity apart from every other religion on the planet today. Other faiths require you to do something to get right with God. All right? They say, mess up much and you're pretty much toast. Well, Christianity is the only religion that offers rightness with God as a gift that we don't deserve. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. You see, we, we can't earn our ticket to heaven. It's a gift. It's an inheritance. So Jesus does not answer the man's question at all. Instead, he often answers people people's questions uh, by the Socratic method. He asks a question in return. He asks a couple of questions, actually. He appeals to the authority of the Old Testament at this point. He asks, what does the law of Moses say? And how do you read it? So in asking those two questions, Jesus held up the Old Testament as the definitive and unerring standard of faith and practice. He had this same conversation in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five with another Pharisee. And in that particular conversation, that Pharisee asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You see that? In one situation, Jesus asks the Pharisee, you know, what's in the law of Moses? How do you read it? In this particular instance in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, the parallel conversation, the Pharisee asks Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus gives the explanation. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Now, the religious expert in our story, in Luke 10, he asked life's greatest question. And he quotes two well-known Old Testament scriptures, just as Jesus did back in Matthew 22. And these two scriptures describe life's greatest need. First, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is at the heart of the Old Testament's teaching about how God's people are to relate to him. You see, before they ever knew him, God loved Israel. He chose them to be his own people, his own special people. He demonstrated this love by rescuing them, delivering them from slavery in Egypt. Then he led them to the promised land. And in return, he asked for wholehearted love and devotion. You're not going to make any graven images of me, okay? You're not going to worship any other idols or gods before me. 
Because our love and wholehearted devotion to God is going to be expressed in obedience to his eternal covenant. So Jesus teaches us that God still seeks the wholehearted love of his people today. And that responding to his love is to be our greatest priority. Thus, we should spare no effort in seeking to grow in love. But what is love? Scripture tells us that obedience is the acid test of our true love for God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey my commands. And in 1 John 5, 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, God's grace gives us the desire to obey God, our Father, and in in our obedience is what brings God's pleasure. And assurance that God loves you deeply solicits, evokes an answering love for him that increases over time, and that's essential for our Christian lives, our Christian living every day. Then the lawyer quotes Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he might have thought that this was a, a brilliant answer, and it was. After all, Deuteronomy 6 is the heart of the Old Testament faith, which calls for total devotion of one's entire being to the worship of Yahweh. Leviticus 19.18 reveals God's will for his people in their relationship to others, the horizontal relationship. This verse reflects the nature of God and his deep concern that we seek the good of others and bless them. Bless them. Again, many people are confused about what it means to love our neighbor, thinking that it means to feel emotional warmth and sympathy and closeness and warm sentiments. However, the agape love that is mentioned here, loving your neighbor, is not emotional in nature. It is volitional. It is an act of the will. Okay? It is acting in the best interest of the other person, seeking their good regardless, regardless of how we may feel about that other person or about that other group. Okay? It's like C.S. Lewis says, you act in love and the feelings and the emotions will follow. This is the basis for the golden rule in Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's what we do to others, not how we feel towards them, that is most important. And Jesus even goes on to accept the man's answer. He said, you've answered correctly. You do this and you shall live. Well, Jesus wouldn't have have said that if it was not possible. Jesus actually believes that it is possible for weak and imperfect human beings like us to love God with all we've got and treat our neighbor with the same regard as we do ourselves. When we hear this expectation, you know what we ought to say, what we're supposed to say? There is no possible way in the world that I and myself would ever be able to live up to this standard. Love what uh, Pastor Greg Ogden of uh, Christ Church of Oak Brook, he says, this realization here should cause us to cast ourselves unreservedly, throw ourselves on the grace of God, repent of our sin-sick souls. Then we would be flooded with the light of God's accepting grace. Our heart of stone is massaged back to life as a heart of flesh that begins to beat within. 
then we will find within a new motivation and desire to want to become all that God hopes us to be because our inner affections are being transformed to love what God loves. We begin to understand that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The law that we hated now becomes the life that we have always wanted. It is grace, folks, that empowers us to live the way we ought to live. We're not trying to earn God's favor by obedience and sacrifice. That's legalism. On the contrary, our obedience is grounded in the grace and the love of God, knowing that we have been accepted by the Heavenly Father. While this religious expert had just admitted at that point that he couldn't possibly do both of those things in his own strength, he may have had a different outcome in this passage. That by asking that follow-up question of who is my neighbor, Jesus is about to show this religious expert that he falls far short in following either of these commands. Verse 28 in Luke 10 says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Well, the command was profound. You love God, you love your neighbor. That is far different from a simple set of rules. Honestly, this would have driven this religious expert to admit his self-doubt. He, he could have thought to himself, you know, that's my problem. I can't love God or my neighbor like that. I try, but I fall short. I need your help, Lord. He could have been like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a sin-filled man, and I live among a people who are f full of sins. Again, rather than admit his spiritual need, he'd try to, try to justify himself by asking Jesus another question, which, again, reveals his true motive. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You see, at this point, he was actually trying to determine if there are any non-neighbors that he does not need to love. Okay, He's actually looking to exclude some people from his circles. And let's be frank, guys. Let's be frank, folks. We do that, do we not? We do that. I have to love everyone? Really? Uh, where do I draw the line? Well, the Jewish rabbis had already explored this issue in, in Leviticus 19.18 when they used the term neighbor as a synonym for brother, or more generically, people, and so the rabbis actually taught that once, na once, that's, that once neighbor was a fellow Israelites, not the Samaritans, nor foreigners, okay? Uh, New Testament scholar uh, J. Jeremiah uh, noted that this rabbinical saying, uh, which stated that, quote, heretics informers, renegades, should be pushed into the ditch and not pulled out. It's very easy to be critical this kind of this kind of uh, attitude, but it's far more common in our day than we care to admit. Okay, right now, right now, in this crisis, we live in a world drowning in human needs. We've got a lot of folks hurting, as you can see in that video that we showed: the homeless, the hungry, the helpless. We have seniors, people with disabilities who feel isolated and separated even our own church members, struggling with isolation. We ask, what are the limits to my love? How far does my responsibility go? Who isn't 
Who isn't my neighbor? Who don't I have to love? Well, these are very relevant questions to ask in a world where even wearing a mask has become a stigma. Christianity Today, this month, has a, has a story titled, Who is My COVID-19 Neighbor? And the article's premise is that Christians will need to pray and work to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. It's not just pray, pray and work. And the only way to beat the corona uh, virus in the U.S. is to beat it everywhere. Otherwise, it'll be like playing whack-a-mole, right? Christianity t Today says, in a globalized era, flames don't just jump streets. They jump continents. They jump nations. They jump communities. And if the COVID-19 pandemic has hammered wealthy nations, it's arriving in many poor nations like a demolition crew Foreign investments is fleeing, revenues from oil and tourism gone, unemployment has risen to perilous levels. All this in places where most people have little or no savings to cushion their fall. Days before Pakistan's Prime Minister, Imran Khan, ordered his 210 million countrymen into their homes, he lamented that it would save them from corona at one end, but they will die from hunger on the other side. You know, for our missionaries, even our own here at Uptown Baptist Church, our international friends and other aid workers, it's a foregone conclusion that surging desperation and malnutrition crouch just around the corner, any of the nations that they serve in, any continent. Well, our Lord's answer to the question of who is my neighbor is to tell this all too familiar story, which I'm afraid may have lost its full significance in our day, okay? Luke 10, 30 to 35. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place in Psalm, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I like the King James Version on this one. He had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Verse 35, the next day took out two denarii, which, by the way, was equivalent to two days' wages back then, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach an important truth in this parable, in this story, that you can't separate you cannot separate your vertical relationship with God and your horizontal relationship with your fellow human beings. It's tied together, inherently tied together. Here we see that a certain man, presumably a Jew, going down Jericho from Jerusalem on a stretch of 18 miles of rocky terrain that plunged 3,300 feet. They called this road the way of blood with good reason. 
You see, somewhere on that desolate road from Jericho to Jerusalem, this lonely Jewish traveler was jumped on by a band of thieves. They did what thieves still do today. They robbed him, beat him, and left him bloodied, naked, and half dead. Well, along the same road comes a priest. Priests were descendants of Aaron, and they served in the temple. He assessed the situation and decided to pass by on the other side. The Lord doesn't tell us what this man was thinking as he passed by. Well, maybe he didn't want to be contaminated, just like right now. We don't want to be contaminated by a, a, you know, a, a, an infected body, right? Or be involved with this person who was obviously in need. You see, involvement with problem people often entangles us in an embarrassing, difficult, and in this case, in our case today, in dangerous situations. Okay? We may not feel good about choosing the other side of the road, but we certainly feel a lot safer, right? Let's be frank. Next, you have the Levite. Here's an educated person of the upper class. Levites were from the Jewish tribe of Levi. They assisted the priests in the service of the temple. But he too passed by. Maybe he was afraid for his own safety. After all, uh, this road was full of robbers. Maybe, like the priest before him, he didn't want to be entangled in a, in a complicated situation. We shouldn't assume that these are bad men, okay? They weren't bad. They were just too busy, like us. For them, and too often, like me, people in need are problems. They are inconveniences. They're interruptions. They're nuisances to our day, distractions to our schedules. They intrude awkwardly on my privacy. They deflect me. They take me away from what I'm supposed to be doing, my duty. They distract me from my responsibilities. They keep me from my hobbies. I agree that they need help, and I hope that someone does help them, but not me, not now, not here, because I have a different schedule and a different agenda. It seemed as though no one would help this man when surprisingly, a Samaritan came and took pity on them. Now, to the first century, Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan, all right? <laughs> the Jews regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds uh, who were members of a false religious cult who had their own temple, their own God, their own, you know, tradition. These Samaritans were half-Jewish, half-Assyrians who had intermarried during the Assyrian conquest of Israel northern Israel, about 750 years before the time of Jesus. See, the Jews refused to let the Samaritans help build the temple in Jerusalem. So the Samaritans, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which became the center for a rival religion. The Samaritans were despised and hated by the Jews of that day. But this despised Samaritan did something which we would have expected from the religious pillars of Jewish society who did nothing. The Samaritan man did not pass by. Instead, he showed the suffering man the three C's, compassion, care, and commitment. He saw the same man lying in the pool of blood as the other two religious leaders saw him, but he feels something. He feels something that they did not. 
he had compassion on him. Okay? Me, just stop right here. Just say a couple of minutes about compassion. This is a key word here. Okay? Because it, may, it means much more than what the NIV says. This is why I like the, the King James Version. He had compassion on him. This is more than just having pity on somebody. The Greek word for compassion carries the idea of, of our inner being deeply moved and stirred. It's the same word used to describe the Lord's feelings when he met lost sinners. It's the same kind of love that moves us to serve others and not think of ourselves. Okay? Usually, the word translates compassion is generally used in the New Testament to describe Jesus himself. But in this particular instance, and two other instances, Jesus uses the word with reference to other people. He says this good Samaritan had compassion, the story of the king who had compassion on the dishonest servant and forgave him of his debts. And the third example in the parable of the prodigal son, where the, fa the father saw his wayward son coming home from afar off, and he had deep compassion for him. See, compassion describes the way that God feels about us. And when we show compassion to others, we're see simply treating them the way that God treated us, as John said in his epistle. We love, we love. Because God first loved us. And really, what this Samaritan did is reflective of what Jesus Christ has done for us, if you think about it, and you think about it, how this applies to us today. Jesus was the one who found us as lost. Lost on the road. And we were half dead. Nobody cared for us. People didn't stop to help us. All right, Religion couldn't help us. So Jesus came along and met our needs. He came down to where we are. For he took upon himself human flesh. He entered this world as a human being. He had compassion on us and healed us. He was the one who paid the full price for our sins to restore us to right relationship with God. There was nothing in us that could earn the salvation or eternal life. It was all done because Jesus had compassion for sinners like you and me, okay? So this Samaritan did not give a second thought that this man was of a different race or religion because he had the same compassion that God has for us, that God has for him. The outcast and acted as a neighbor, though he had plenty of reasons not to care, as hated as he was in Jewish society, Where's the Jewish priest and Levite who would not show mercy even to one of their own? The point in this parable is that the love of Christ must transcend race, ethnicity, religion, social class. The list goes on. This Samaritan's compassion is expressed in how he cared for the injured man. The Samaritan deals with the victim's immediate needs. He bandaged him up. Bandaged him up poured on oil and wine, probably having to tear up his own garments to do it. Then he places the man on his own donkey, leads the animal down the road to an end. This is an act that requires courage. After all, this is Jewish territory, okay? And how would it look like if you had a Samaritan transporting the Jewish victim of a mugging? Think about it. 
You're a Samaritan. You're going through Jewish territory. You got a mugged man on your donkey. Okay, how does that look? What kind of misunderstanding might that have caused? And once at the end, the Samaritan continues to look after the man. He's demonstrating personal contact and care, not just sending off money, which he had, obviously. Thirdly, the Samaritan's actions show that he had commitment. His victim is a total stranger. He's a man of another race and religion. He is stripped and he is penniless. Doesn't have a dime on him. Yet the Samaritan assumed responsibilities for the man's future needs and debts. He gives the innkeeper today's wages. And he said, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He's not expecting to recover any of his expenses. He's freely expressing undeserved and unexpected love to a person in need. Just like God did. Just like Jesus did to us. So Jesus asked the theologian in verse 36, which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? (laughs) And the expert in the law, this attorney replied, just like an attorney, I'm telling you, the one who had mercy, the one who had mercy, the one who had compassion on him. You see, he couldn't even bear to say the word Samaritan, okay? But he referred to him as the one who showed mercy which really shows his, his prejudice, his, his long-held prejudices. At this point, the answer is clear. My neighbor is not simply my fellow Jew, my fellow churchgoer, my fellow worshiper. My neighbor is that person who's in need, whose need I can see, whose need I can meet. My neighbor may be my bitterest enemy. My neighbor may be a complete stranger who comes to me bloody and needy, helping with their problems may demand my time and my expenses, yet they may be unable to repay me. And isn't it funny how problems come to us out of nowhere and never? It doesn't, problems don't make appointments. Did COVID-19 make any appointments? No. No. It transcended. Transcended people groups. Transcended uh, race and nationality and nations and communities so our need is not to define who our neighbor is but to care for them that's our responsibility that's what we've been called to do and and i have to say i've been blessed to have known and to have lived in a city that has welcomed so many refugees uh, who i've come into contact with during the past decades in this chicago land area we've never screened uh, which refugees we help or, or don't help because of their ethnicity or religion. I've drank tea with Buddhists from Vietnam and Cambodia. I've drank the strongest coffee with Muslims, Muslims from Bosnia and Serbia. I've shared meals with my Orthodox Christian friends, brothers and sisters from Ethiopia. We've never asked in this city, we've never asked who is my neighbor, but rather... The question is, how does my faith show up? Again, our need is not to define who our neighbor is, but to become become the kind of person who cannot pass by on the other side. We want to be the one who feels compassion, who shows care and commitment. You may be thinking to yourself, again, who am I supposed to help? The one nearby or the one far off? Well, the Bible 
gives us some pretty clear clues. First, our first and special obligation is to our own family, our immediate family, our extended families. First Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We also have a special obligation to help other Christian brothers and sisters in need. Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, that does not eliminate our obligation to care for the needy, whether they fit into our particular group or not, and we shouldn't exclude them. And the parable today reminds us that to love one's neighbor involves showing care and compassion, even with those with whom we would normally uh, not have any relationships with. You see, we're not true followers of Christ until we're ready to give whatever's needed at personal cost. And it is only our feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, receiving the stranger, clothing the naked or caring for the sick, visiting the prisoners that shows us truly to be disciples of Christ. That's Matthew 25, 34 to 36. Those things do not make us Christian disciples, okay? But if we confess that we're people of faith, then our faith must show up in some of the things that we do for the least of these. We are Christians through faith in the finished work of Christ. Yet faith is never alone. Okay, Love is the sacrificial action that results from faith. Gary Enrig, who's a pastor in Redlands, California, said, Love means interrupting my schedule, expending my money, risking my own reputation, ruining my property, even for a stranger, so that I can do what is best for him. Love is the compassion that feels, the care that involves, the commitment that endures. Love initiates, taking that first step and reaching out to those in need. Love pays for the ultimate price, going to extraordinary lengths to help the hurting. Our willingness to become involved in the needs of others is the evidence of our experience of the love of God in our lives. Well, this past week marked our national uh, annual commemoration of the Holocaust. And every year at this time, we remember, we remember the six million Jews who were murdered and the courage of those who liberated the survivors. The theologian, German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few courageous individuals who were determined not only to refute the idea that Hitler was an answer to the prayers of the German people, as many German pastors believed at the time, but he and other resistors were also willing to topple Hitler, even if it meant killing him. So how did this pacifist turn into a co-conspirator? Okay? And I'll close with this story. This is the, truly the ultimate Good Samaritan. As one of eight children, Bonhoeffer was raised in this liberal, nominal, nominally uh, religious environment, and his family thought he may be headed to a classical music career as a pianist at an early age. Well, when he was 14 years old, Dietrich announced to his entire family that he wanted to become a minister and a theologian. Obviously, the family was not too pleased. So Bonhoeffer graduated from the University of Berlin at 
1927. He was 21 at the time. He spent some months in Spain as an assistant pastor in a German congregation. Then he was back in Germany to write a dissertation, which would grant him the right to a university, university appointment, okay, to a university appointment. He then spent a year in America at New York's Union Theological Seminary before returning to the post of lecturer at the University of Berlin. Well, during all these years as this, uh, this was happening in, in Bonhoeffer's life, Hitler, Adolf Hitler, rose to power, becoming chancellor of Germany in January 1933. He became president a year and a half later. Hitler's anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and actions intensified, as did his opposition, which included the likes of theologian Karl Barth, Pastor Martin Niemöller, and the young Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, together with other pastors and theologians, they organized the Confessing Church, which announced publicly in its Barman Declaration in 1934 its allegiance first and foremost to Jesus Christ. They said, we repudiate the false teaching that the church can and must recognize yet other happenings and powers, personalities, and truths as divine revelation but alongside this one word of God. Bonhoeffer at the time in 1937, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, and he had a call for a more faithful and radical obedience to Christ and a severe rebuke of comfortable Christianity. He said, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring any repentance, baptism without any church discipline, communion without any confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. During this time, Bonhoeffer was teaching pastors in an underground seminary, Fink Finkenwald. See, the government had banned him from teaching openly, so he went underground. Eventually, the seminary was discovered and closed. The confessing church became increasingly uh, reluctantly uh, reluctant to speak out against Hitler, and moral opposition proved increasingly ineffective. So Bonhoeffer decided to change his strategy at this point. Up to this point, he was just a mere pacifist. Well, he had tried to oppose the Nazis through religious action and moral persuasion. Now he signed up with the German Secret Service to serve as a double agent. While traveling to church conferences all over Europe, he was supposed to be collecting information about the places where he visited, but he was instead trying to help the Jews escape Nazi oppression. Bonhoeffer became a part of a plot to overthrow and later assassinate Hitler. And as his tactics were changing, he went to America to become a guest lecturer. But he couldn't shake this feeling of responsibility for his countrymen. Within months of his arrival, he wrote to Reinhold Niebuhr, another theologian. He said, I have made a mistake here in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Well, Bonhoeffer, though privy to various plots in Hitler's life, was never at the center of the plans. Eventually, his resistance efforts, mainly his role in rescuing Jews, was discovered on an April afternoon in 1943 
two men arrived in a black Mercedes. They put Bonhoeffer in the car. They drove him to Tegel Prison. Well, Bonhoeffer spent two years in prison, corresponding with his family and friends, pastoring fellow prisoners, and reflecting on the meaning of Jesus Christ for today. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was transferred from Tegel to Buchenwald and then to the extermination camp at Flossenburg. And on April 9, 1945, one month before Germany surrendered, he was hanged. Bonhoeffer was hanged with the other resistors. Well, a decade later, a camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging described this scene. The prisoners were taken from their cells, and the verdicts of court-martial read out to them through the half-open door in one room of the huts. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer. Before taking off his prison garb, he knelt down on the floor and he prayed fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer, and then he climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in just a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Close quote. Greater love is no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Here you have a German who laid down his life for the Jews. He was indeed the ultimate good Samaritan, and that's what it means to be a good neighbor. So uh, I want to remind our congregation to be bold and to be courageous in continuing to look out for your neighbors, anyone, anyone in need, going above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, we have a nightly prayer meeting. Uh, please join us, 7 p.m. every night, except this Monday. Uh, but every night, 7 p.m., Pastor Mark Jones will send out the call information uh, via email. Please join us. And join us next week when we uh, will start a new series on Philippians, uh, where we'll see the Apostle Paul writing this very deeply moving letter full of peace and joy, while he was quarantined and, and sheltered in place. Not in, the comfort, not in the comfort of his home, but in a jail cell, chained to a guard. So please join us uh, for prayer this week. Join us again next Sunday. Um, we're going to give uh, a couple of minutes for our, our uh, members uh, to get ready. We're going to have a family meeting right after the service, so stick around. For those of you who, who joined us and you're not members, uh, have, a, have a good week. And now I would like to just close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning in Luke 10. We, we hear your clarion call to, to love you with everything that we are and to love those whom you infinitely value. Are you asking us to do something that is really not possible, Lord? We have to confess. We have to admit that we're only weak, 
fallen human beings whose passion for you can only be described as weak and tepid. Lord, we hear you that you want us to engage our hearts, our souls, our minds, our bodies in full devotion, commitment to you. But when we look at our daily lives, even now, Lord, we feel that we pale in comparison to your high expectations, Lord. And we admit that we fall short. Lord, if we're going to be what you want us to be, Lord, we need an infusion of your supernatural divine love. We need an infusion. We need your Holy Spirit to fill us with a love that is not our own. Yet we so want to live into your belief and your faith in us. And so as we embark this journey together, Lord, create a sense of anticipation in us, Lord, that you'll stretch, even in the midst of this crisis, Lord, you'll stretch our capacity beyond what we ever thought was imaginable or possible so that we can live into your possibility for us. Lord, because you're able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we may ask or think according to the power who dwells within us. Lord, we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.